Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 16 of the BETD podcast series. I'm your host, Michael Boxbaum, energy journalist and blogger with the Heinrich Bull Stiftung's energytransition.org. For this podcast, we're talking with Indonesian journalist and BETD fellow Ika Krismantari. Based in the nation's capital of Jakarta, Ika has long specialized in energy and resource extraction-related subjects, writing for the Jakarta Post, and now editing The Conversation Indonesia, an online media platform. Like many of us, she's been more or less in self-imposed COVID lockdown since March. From this conversation, as the distant sounds of evening traffic and Muslim prayer calls later give way to the gentle songs of Kittidids, from her home in Jakarta, Ika shared her observations and reporting with our audience. And who are they? Well, they are the people who attend the Berlin Energy Transition Dialogues. Policymakers, analysts, academics, journalists, business people, investors, and others from within the energy sector. Social media has upended the way journalism functions. While many of our listeners are probably familiar with legacy media publications like the Jakarta Post, we begin our interview with Ika as she discusses the new media outlet for which she now works, The Conversation, and shares with us some great news. Oh, well, uh, I'm working for The Conversation Indonesia. Well, it's part of a global network, and it's actually an online media platform and has a mission, you know, to help um, academics and researchers publish their work. Uh, it can be their research or analysis or insights to the general public. So we collaborate with them um, to produce high-quality research-based information uh, to improve the quality of public debate. Because uh, when we are thinking about researchers and, you know, these academics, they sort of live in, a, you know, a bubble? in a tower, in a tower, in a <laughs> castle. <laughs> and, you know, we help them to, you know, to just be like us and can, you know, and they speak different languages, right? And Absolutely. we sort of... You sort of help us, you know, to just speak at our language and connect with the general public more. That is basically our mission. Uh, the one thing that intrigued me is that because uh, if I can share you, I had this some kind like a dream, you know, of running my own media. So I had it since I was in college. So the, this dream is sort of like comes true yeah, when I'm working for the conversation because it's, it's, it's a relatively small media with less than 15 people and it gives me a lot of space yeah, to innovate and experiment, you know, to create, uh, uh, you can say, content or products to serve the readers. So those kind of things really challenge me. Yeah being in the conversation. What's your beat? Uh, what's your role at the conversation? Well, you know, guess what? I was just being promoted <laughs> just yesterday. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. 
Now I'm the head of editorial of wow. the conversation. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm responsible for not only managing the production of the content, ensuring their um, qualities, but I'm also responsible of you know delivering the message to the public. Like I'm also in charge of you know social media strategies and audience development. It's so you're very so you're the conversation master. What do you mean? <laughs> master, like Master Yoda? <laughs> huh? Maybe so. I, don't know. I, I hope you can use your Jedi powers for good. Amen. You're a fellow this year uh, with the BETD. Could you, could you talk about what you're working on then as part of your fellowship? Well, uh, as part of this project, I'm working on uh, uh, this uh, reportage, yeah? with another fellow from Taiwan, Pei Hua. So we are collaborating to produce an article on how the pandemic affects the development of renewable energy in Indonesia. And here, Pei will help me uh, give her insight on the role of Chinese foreign investor in taking part in the development of renewable energy in Indonesia because uh, Chinese investors are very dominant in Indonesia power sector, especially in the coal-based power plants. But they try to also enter the renewable energy sector as well. So we sort of try to see how they, you know, how they, how they roll in this uh, a new game, yeah, for the Chinese investor. I want to circle back to that point about Chinese investment and how that's changing things on the ground there. But before we get too far in this conversation, could you talk a bit about Indonesia's energy transition so far, how it's moving forward or not, and break down a bit the current energy matrix between coal and gas, wind, solar, hydro, Coals, I, uh, I believe, still dominates our energy mix at almost 40%, followed by oil at 33%, and after that, gas at 20%. And renewable energy only contributed only contribute less than 10%. And that includes hydro, geothermal, solar, and biofuel. And we do have this ambitious target to increase the share of renewables to 23% by 2025 and 31% by 2030. Well, based on, uh, you know, on the paper, it's almost an impossible task. Yeah, only five years we need to achieve that amount of percentage yeah, I think it's kind of impossible because there are so many challenges that we are we are dealing right now, like the lack of political will from the government. Well, actually, the legislature have included uh, for the first time the energy, the renewable energy bill, in their priority list this year. But there has been much progress so far. In the list that you just gave us, did I mishear you or did you not mention wind? 
uh, no, I I didn't mention win because it's just too small to my to be mentioned. <laughs> Is there a, a a lack of wind resource? No, we have we we have plenty of field, but there are not much, you know, investment uh, going into that sector. But Indonesia is, of course, both a big oil consumer and a major biofuels producer, in particular palm oil, which has rightly become the subject of international scrutiny and the focus of many campaigns. I asked Ika about the current status of biofuels and palm oil production. Well, the oil consumption is getting lower in the past five years, like dropping by 3.5% each year, and we try to replace this uh, uh, non-renewable energy with biofuel, yeah. And the government recently launched a program to push biofuel use. But yeah, uh, the, the production of, the massive production of uh, biofuels also raises other issue, yeah, as it also worsened deforestation uh, well, Indonesia forest is the second largest in the world after Brazil. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And the development of palm oil has increased uh, increased uh, the, the deforestation in the country. I can quote a report by the European Union. Please. That palm oil is associated with higher levels of deforestation than other biofuels uh, share that Indonesia had lost 99 million acres of forests compared to the previous uh, 32 years. So and this is accelerating. A, yeah, and it's, it is worsening. Indonesia is also a huge coal miner, the fifth largest worldwide behind China, the U.S., India, and Australia. In the last few years, it's produced over a half billion metric tons annually, with roughly 80% of that being exported, mainly again to Chinese or other Asian markets. But this July, coal producers announced they were cutting back production sharply due to weak prices and falling demand, some of it COVID-related. Nevertheless, the coals also burned in Indonesia too, correct? Yes. Well, yeah, I'll get to the point because... so. Since the 90s, I think, Indonesia has opened uh, for foreign investment, right, to develop its coal mining sectors because of the, you know, the rising coal prices as well. So they sort of, the, the sort of, the government sort of like open up the coal mining sectors, you know, to, to boost the exports. But somehow, I think in the early 2000s, yeah, the coal prices uh, started to, to go down. And Indonesia decided to allocate most of their coal production for domestic use, in this case, to generate their power plants. The majority of power plants in Indonesia, almost more than 60%, I think, uh, is coal-based power plants. So that's why they sort of like, you know, allocate the, the, 
the coal export to domestic use. As the fourth largest country in the world in terms of population, with some 270-plus million citizens, that, that's a huge market. Um, we, we touched earlier on the role of, of Chinese investors there. Could, could you speak a bit more to that? We do have ambitious uh, power plants uh, construction, like in the, uh, like, uh, wait, 15 years ago, in 2005, I think to develop 10,000 megawatts of power plants, and they're all, all coal-based coal power plants. Yeah. And then the, all, so we, ha, we do have agreement with the Chinese uh, companies to develop that one. And now we do have, uh, now under Jokowi, our current president, we do have this, um, Another ambitious, uh, ambitious uh, program to develop uh, 30,000 uh, megawatts power plants, and still the Chinese dominate this project. So China uh, has uh, hold a very important role in uh, the, the, the development of energy sector in Indonesia at the moment. Let's just say here, and, and let me be clear, I, I'm not being, or we sh we're not being critical of this development as being undertaken necessarily by Chinese firms, um, but, but we're being critical of the fact that it's being made uh, in coal at all, something we, we know must be left in the ground. All, and all of this development that we're talking about is, is still having a, an, an impact, a massive impact on biodiversity. Ika, could you, could you talk about how energy development is affecting these critical natural habitats? Well, Indonesia is one of the five most uh, spacious rich countries in the world. Yeah? And the effect from this uh, fossil fuel is maddening yeah? because like for example, the deforestation for palm oil plantation, it threatens species like Sumatran tiger or orang utan. Uh, these species have lost their homes due to, due to deforestation in Sumatra and Kalimantan. And, and this is, uh, I, I, may I quote one research, one latest, Please. Recent uh, recent research showing that the similar effect uh, effect also happens in Sulawesi, another island. How this this um, extraction of uh, fossil fuel also affect the endemic species in the island of Sulawesi. What level of government regulations are in place then to to protect these endangered species, and and are they being seriously adhered to then at all? Yes, they are, but they are pretty, you know, scattered and not organized, and it's just it just it just nothing compared to this all huge. Uh, operation by mining companies, you know, to destroy the forest. To what extent is this known that, that resource extraction is devastating these habitats? I mean, obviously you've covered this uh, in the post and now in the conversation, but to to what extent are these issues uh, 
Uh, to extent, they become a part of the general national conversation there. Uh, I don't know if you if you uh, noticed this, but have you seen a video of Harrison Ford yelling uh, at the I don't it's a, our forest minister. I think so. Yeah. Have you have you seen the yes. video? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. There has been much discussion. Like media always talk about it. How how the government is being ignored yeah, about this case, but. I think money talks more, yeah. The Harrison Ford interview Ika mentions happened back in 2013 and caused a national uproar both then and later when it was broadcast in the first episode of the Showtime series, Years of Living Dangerously. The backstory is that after touring Indonesia and witnessing firsthand the devastation from mining and deforestation, both legal and illegal, Ford sat down personally with the nation's forest minister, Zulkifi Hassan, and, well, started channeling Indiana Jones. After the interview, the forestry minister was so angered that he threatened to have the actor deported, though Ford was already on his way out of the country. To this day, the interview is still controversial, and the government continues to condemn both what they called Ford's harassment of state institutions, as well as the implications he and director James Cameron were making. I found a segment of the episode on YouTube and selected a short clip with Ika translating Minister Hassan's responses to Ford's impassioned questions. Let's, uh, let's take a listen. We were in Tessanilo. Tessanilo. Mm. <laughs> National Park. Okay. It's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not funny. Only mm. 18% of it remains. Mm. We saw it. There are new roads, new illegal roads. Forests cut, trees laying on the ground, burnt where they fell. It's devastating. It's heartbreaking to see it. You saw it. You pledged a resolution. What have you done? I was shocked when I first saw it. We see this every day. We are only now experiencing what you call a democracy. Sir, they didn't drop out of the sky on this property. They came there over a period of time, and there was plenty of time to stop the behavior, stop the activity. This is not America. It is different. We have just started with what we call reform. This is new. Now people are just starting to taste freedom. Sometimes we have too much freedom. We are trying to move them. So you're... Yeah, okay, I understand. I understand. You're willing to lose the battle. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Okay, all right. I see all of this wealth, but it's at the top of the heap. Down at the bottom of the heap, sir, there's inequity. There's illegality mm -hmm. and there's corruption. Mm. Thank you for your time. Sama sama, makasih. In the seven years since Ford's interview, which we'll link to in the show notes, I asked Ika to what extent things have changed. Unfortunately, like all the efforts, all the initiative launched by the government. I think there's on. They are only ceremonial. Yeah, they don't really do much or uh, give enough result. Result, you know. 
to be able to save or make changes, uh, significant, significant changes. And, and during this time, how have Indonesians then begun to experience a, a changed climate? Well, Indonesia is, uh, it is predicted to experience temperature increases of around 0.8 degrees Celsius by 2030. And it has devastating if, uh, effects, of course. But the closest things that probably affect us is that it, cause, it causes severe weather condition like floods and droughts in some part of the country. Like for, for example, I live in Jakarta, the capital city, has suffered from massive floods like several times. So we recently published an article which showed that, you know, these severe weather patterns also affect the operation of power plants in Indonesia. So when, you know, for example, when uh, rising sea temperatures occur, it triggers jellyfish blooms. Jellyfish blooms? Yes. And then uh, in 2016, uh, this jellyfish force, uh, there's one uh, coal power plant to shut down in East Java for 20 days. And it caused a massive loss of uh, 20 million for the state power producer. Is, so, yeah. Is the state the biggest power producer? Yes, this is the only. The PLN. only? PLN. Uh, it's oligop oligopoly. So, although there are different producers mining the coal, there's only one Indonesian company that's generating. The electricity? Yeah, PLN. That's quite the monopoly over yes, several course. hundred million people. Yes, and it caused uh, uh, another challenge too as well for the renewable uh, energy producer, right? Like they have to sell to this uh, state, to this uh, company only, right? And they don't have the right to set the price or make a big, make a bargain, right? So the state owns the entire power and transmission system? Yes, yes. So almost the entire energy system, including both generation and transmission, is state-owned, with the exception of renewables? No, no. Well, they try to open up a bit, but yeah, I think PLN, the state power producer, still dominates everything. Besides the effects of global warming, the coronavirus is also, of course, affecting everyone across the whole planet. How, how would you, Ika, characterize how Indonesia's situation is and how the government's response has been so far? Well, Michael, uh, giving a second thought, I think I'm not a good ambassador of my country because I complain much about my country. Well, but... Well, I'm not very proud about how the government hand is handling the pandemic so far, yeah. Because I think uh, Indonesia fared pretty badly. Like, for now, Indonesia has the highest number of COVID-19 cases in Southeast Asia. And its fatality rate at 15,000, I think, is the second worst in Asia after India. Wow. 
Yeah, and if other countries, you know, like Germany or Australia, can identify its first, second wave, we don't know how many waves we have been encountering. Like we keep breaking records in the number of daily cases. We thought we reached the climax when we saw 4,000 cases a day, but recently we just uh, witnessed 5,000 cases a day. So we are not really sure. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, 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 because we are not really sure again because our low testing rate, because we don't test, we don't test as much as people as we want. And many cases are left undetected, so we don't have really, you know, the exact figure who, who are really uh, infected. Have there been have there been shutdowns? Have been lockdowns? Have been, are people staying yeah. at home? Uh, yeah, in Jakarta we do have, but we don't we do, we don't uh, enforce it like you know like in Australia or in Melbourne like a total lockdown. It's just a partial lockdown, if you can call it. So people can go outside, they can meet other people, go to, you know, public places. Yeah, and, and then there's no much enforcement from the government as well. In, in our conversation earlier over Skype, I got to see your two kids, your two beautiful kids running around uh, in the background. As, as a mom and, and as a journalist, how has COVID affected your ability to write and, and to publish and, and, and work? Uh, well, I think, uh, I don't know. Uh, being a mother, I think it gives you an advantage yeah, of getting used to multitasking, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? And, and yeah, you know, so far I don't think that I have any problem with it. Because, yes, I'm confined in my home now since March. But I think I can manage it pretty well. I'm still productive. I'm, well, you just got promoted. Uh, yes, that's why. <laughs> Returning to energy topics, to what extent uh, are the government's new renewable energy goals that you mentioned earlier part of the country's COVID recovery plans? Well, actually, this this I will discuss this topic on my reportage for the BETD fellowship. Okay. So I said it here because it will, you know, just blow up the surprise. No, no. <laughs> oh, okay. You, you want to hold this back? No, no. I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? Is it good for me to share it here, or? Um, you'll reach another audience, but I, I don't think that you will, by any okay. means whatsoever, be unable to share this again with different audiences in the future. Okay. Maybe a bit of teaser, right? Our uh, our article is basically one to you know sort of. Uh, try to see uh, at the side of the pandemic, right? So like different, well, and I see how Indonesia is trying to show a different story in this case, like different from other countries where the uh, pandemic has dampened efforts to develop renewable energy. And it turns out Indonesia uh, the pandemic uh, can be a blessing in disguise, you know? How so? Uh, so, so, this is it. Um, well, the pandemic has led 
to falling energy demand, right? In many countries, including Indonesia, it, also, it is also happening. And many also believe that the demand will recover in the next two and three or three years. And to meet this demand, I have talked to several uh, experts. They said that the most feasible way to meet this increased demand within a short amount of time is by building renewable energy project. Because uh, building a fossil, fossil fuels uh, power plant, like for example, coal power plants, it just take more time and investment. So it's, it's, it's cheaper, it's, it's more effective if we build uh, renewable power plants than the, the, the fossil fuel-based power plants. To build a coal power plants, you need like three years or two. And then when you, when you, yeah, when you build solar, solar panels, like for example, or solar PV project, yeah, you only need like one year. That's why it's more feasible. You mentioned that Indonesia only produces about 10% of its electricity from renewables. And, and much of that is, is either hydro or geothermal. What's slowing down then the growth of wind or solar development? There are many challenges, uh, Michael. And it's also bugging me since I was a, a, an energy reporter back in the Jakarta Post. And it's still not being answered up until now, these challenges. Well, the main challenges, uh, obviously, are the lack of political power from the policymakers, of course. Maybe one of the reasons is because they think that developing renewables will not benefit them, you know? Like for years, this politician or government official have taken advantage of energy project, like coal, for example, in Indonesia, to get coals out of the land, you need to get permits. And to have this permit, you have to bribe, quote unquote, the local governments to have it. And you can't do this with renewable energy, right? Because the sunshine, waters, and wind no one owns me, right? They are free. <laughs> That's why. So there's no inherent corruption system around wind and solar yet. Yeah, I, I guess so. Or they, they haven't found it yet. I don't know. <laughs> and yeah, there's also this, uh, I think, mis misassumption yeah, from the, the current uh, policymakers that investing in renewable energy requires huge investment. It, it doesn't necessarily. It's just simply this is the this is the method yeah, yeah. they've been operating under for so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like the the facts showing that the price of, for example, solar panels continue to decrease, right? Mm -hmm. And it would be, as I say, it would be cheaper to develop solar PV project than coal coal power plants in the future. But yeah, maybe maybe they don't really see it because, you know, they probably think that developing, you know, this this energy is not benefit it's not benefiting them right in terms of you know giving their giving them economic benefits to what extent is is corruption a major factor in, in holding 
development bank. It's, it's massive. It's just if, if you notice that Indonesia is one of the most corrupted country in in the world, I think now. And then, yeah. I noticed that I am just telling a bad things about my government. <laughs> I just, <laughs> but I, that's the, that's the fact. Sorry. But in all seriousness, you you mentioned that Indonesia has established a new renewable energy target. How how serious though uh, are these plans? I mean, is this political theater, or do you see anything really happening here? I don't know. It's not, you know, as I mentioned before, like we we targets to have 23%, right? By 2025, which means in the next five years. And we do now have only less than 10% of renewables energy in our current energy mix. So it's pretty far, yeah? I don't know if we can reach it by the time. Is there any sort of public push for renewables in Indonesia? Is there an, is there something like a local equivalent to the Fridays for Future movement? Or to what extent are citizens putting pressure on politicians to, to act? I will cover this in my report, you know. I do see a glimpse of hope of some individuals, you know. How Indonesia might have a hope I uh, like. Uh, I found many initiatives are being launched by different pop by different people across the country, and I see. I, I'm. I interview some these people who you know try to uh, try to you know sort of contribute something to the environment. In terms of energy, they, they try to install power, power, solar panels in their houses. So when you know when the when the the the, the renewable energies sector in Indonesia seem you know don't really have future, I can see you know how how. These people restore my faith, you know, in humanity. <laughs> you know how these people with their, you know, initiative just they don't they they don't they just don't care about the government and just install the solar panels and put it on the top of their roofs. That's basically it. Is it illegal to put on solar panels on your house? No, and it's 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 legal. It's legal here. And but but the the government doesn't encourage it. Like, well, they have they have this uh, price sim where you can actually sell the. Well, uh, when you install a solar panel, you somehow uh, can get access right from the panels that you install, right? Mm -hmm. Access of electricity, and you can sell it to the power producer. For, to the power company, but based on their arrangement, so we uh, they they will only pay for point of six from the from the price that they, they give us the from from the price that we we 
buy electricity from them. So Zero you, point. So you get a small fraction, just a really small yes. amount of money after. Uh, well, uh, there's one, this one uh, expert I interview. He said that if the government just offer it like at the same price, like uh, for they sell and buy at the same price, it will it will be enough in incentive for the people, you know, to just put solar panels on their roofs, like, and it can solve. Uh, the electricity electricity crisis actually without the government needs to you know build power plants that's the dream actually well that 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 was really beautifully put Ika thank you thank you um, tell us again where can viewers find you uh, read your work and now you're editing and you can read it all in our website can I share it please. No? Yeah, it, but, well, actually, uh, if you want to, we, we do we do publish uh, our articles in English and in in Indonesian. So for English, you can just uh, click www.theconversation.com id slash id dash English, and we do have a global newsletter yeah, where we deliver our updated coverage on Indonesia and Southeast Asia every two weeks. Ika, thank you. Thank you for your time. And no your worries. And everything with thank us. you. Thank you so much, Michael. I really enjoyed this one. And thanks to all of you who've tuned in and stayed tuned in. You've been listening to the Berlin Energy Transition Dialogue podcast, a BETD production. The dialogues themselves are hosted and supported by the German federal government and are a joint initiative of the German Renewable Energy Federation, BEE, the German Solar Association, BSW Solar, the German Energy Agency, DANA, and Eclarion. For more information about the dialogues, please find us online at virtual.energydialogue.berlin and follow The Green Sofa on your social media channels. I'll put up some links in the show notes to Ika's recent pieces in the conversation and a link to Harrison Ford's clip in James Cameron's documentary series on climate change, Years of Living Dangerously. I'll also link in Ika's Twitter address for those who'd like to follow her there. If you like the show, please consider subscribing to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd like to thank my amazing producer, Christian Craneborg, who keeps doing a fantastic job pulling this podcast together. Again, I'm Michael Buxbaum. You can find my recent blogs for the Heinrich Boll Stiftung at energytransition.org or reach me directly on Twitter at lmichaelbuxbaum or michael at buxbaum-media.com. Our theme song is Way of Life by Paul Verna. Until next time, please wear a mask, stay healthy, and thanks for listening.